we're live there we go hi steve <laughs> yeah thank you for doing this um so i was talking with some people over the past couple months and they said they were very interested in how does science and faith relate to each other and so it seemed as though it would be a really good chance to talk to you because i remember flying into edinburgh and going to one of your classes and you actually talked about some of these four boxes or four approaches do you remember that? Mm. I was exhausted. I, I was very the tired. Room. I don't remember which class it was. It was a, it was a small one. We were in like a, mm. a horseshoe shaped mm -hmm. seating. Anyways, yep. but your second master's degree is in science and faith. And so why not do it? I have yeah. here the four of them, the four approaches, views. What do you like to call them? Are they approaches, views? Yeah, so these come from um, a guy named Ian Barber who wrote in 1966 one of the sort of where I considered seminal texts to do with science and religion as a field of study. Um, and Ian Barber was both a theologian and a trained scientist, which is a sort of like oh, cred okay. for being able to speak in both camps. Right. Um, and this follows from quite a few other similar sort of major movers and shakers in the field since that time. So for example, there's uh, John Polkinghorne, who very recently yeah. died uh, last week, two weeks ago. Um, oh, I didn't and then there are other that. names. Yeah, yeah, very wow. recently passed. Um, and there are other names that sort of float in and around too. So like you and I have both read a little bit of Teilhard de Chardin, mm -hmm. who well, himself was working before 1960s, the 1960s, but was a Jesuit as well as a paleontologist. Right. So like he can speak on both camps in that respect. Um, or of course my, my good buddy, Tom Torrance, who sort of spoke in the science religion field, but he was much more of a theologian by training. Right. And kind of tangentially a scientist sort of by in a, in a very, very abstract way of it. Um, mostly in terms of thinking about like methodology of science. All this to say, uh, from Ian Barber, there are four principal ways to consider how science and religion relate to each other. There's been a bit of humming and hawing about them in the last 40 years, right? There's maybe maybe one or two other relationships that are added on, depending oh, okay. on what you're asking, but mm -hmm. sometimes they feel like just like slightly more specific versions of one of the four that already exist. So oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the four to get us started with, uh, we should already see here on the screen. Yeah. So that is conflict, independence, dialogue, and integration. Conflict is the one most are probably used to. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, maybe can we do like each of them in like two minutes? Something like three minutes. Uh, yeah. Well, I was thinking it might be interesting to talk about each of these four, like you said, and let you show mm. off in some sense. But then I think the only question I really have is how does one shift from one to the next to the next? But that's that's maybe the, towards the end. Can you explain mm. them? Yeah. Yeah, I'll try and give us um, something to go on with them. So conflict, the sort of, again, the, the, the paradigm most of us probably are used to, especially in the States, it's a lot more prevalent. Right? The For idea science that, and faith that, to be in conflict. Yeah, that they okay. they have fundamentally different aims even, and that the way they work is so different that they cannot help but conflict. So, for example, like if we're thinking about 
ways that people read Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, right. where if you're reading it as a hard and fast scientific text, yeah, you're going to come into conflict with things like evolution and the ancient age of everything we can see as far as we can tell, right? right. As opposed to the timeline that exists within the text of the Bible. Um, and then there are other versions of this that exist that are maybe more subtle that like you might even be able to consider um, Soren Kierkegaard's leap into the unknown, right? Leap into faith potentially as a kind of conflict because you're sort of taking okay. a step from a purely rational position right over this sort of gap and the gap is where it really becomes for some folk faith right into the irrational yeah yes possibly again <laughs> I understand. Yeah. it's there's a bit of you know you can weigh this a little bit because you could also potentially put that same situation into like independence like it doesn't quite neatly fall into one or the other so that's okay. a little bit to go on for conflict independence the notion is just that the two fields, as it were, just sort of are ships in the night. <laughs> they don't really conflict they don't with anybody because they don't just, interact. Yeah, they well, they just have since they're different domains, they just don't have any crossover points. And are, does that also mean that if somebody has that approach, they would not let them talk about each other's things? Potentially, yeah. Like so, or if, they, if, they're, they, if their ship's passing in the night, yeah, they don't talk to each other. But it's also like, you know what? The Bible should not even bother trying to talk about science, and science shouldn't even bother trying to talk about faith things. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that would be okay. a fair way to put it. Yeah, and it's just that, yeah, since they're different domains entirely, it, you have to be if you're going to have them do any sort of cross chatter, which is the third category, you have to be especially careful with how they do it because they have different methods and they have different aims and they have different ways of working their own particular kind of rationality, right? You don't, right. you can't test for God in the same way that you can test for the existence of water in soil, like fundamentally right. two different ways to do things. Right. Yeah. So then what would be dialogue? Dialogue uh, permits just a little more conversation. So for example, it might be looking at the crossover points where some of the methods of doing theology or biblical studies aligns with some of the ways that you might methodologically run a scientific experiment. Okay. However, it's a bit, it's, a, you know, with that kind of care, you always have to be, well, quite careful about sort of, making sure you know exactly what differentiates these things because it's quite easy for one thing to slip from one camp into the other and right. suddenly you might have some things that are sort of uh that would throw your experiment off if you want to shift into sort of scientific language so in dialogue they talk but is it that they're not allowed to get to the things that they would disagree about or they can talk but they just stay friendly <laughs> um and I'm not sure on that. I think it would still come to, as you say that, that sounds to me like you're still talking out of the conflict model. Interesting. Right? Because the idea is, yeah, they can talk up until they disagree, which you're sort of taking as given. <laughs> okay. That's like two political parties sitting at the bar Maybe. 
and never talking about politics. <laughs> Possibly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So science and faith can talk as long as they never try to talk about the same thing. That that would actually Maybe. be, or, that would be conflict. That, that would still or be that conflict. Or that they're aware of, its, of what the differences are. They're aware that there are some things that might be irreconcilable differences. Okay. There might be some of that stuff there just because the rules of the game for sort of religious thinking and scientific thinking might be just fundamentally different at some place. Okay. Um, again, I should also say before we get to the last one, we should be, we should always take a little bit of care when we talk about like capital S science. <laughs> maybe maybe like, should we do that at the end of integration? Okay, go for it. Sure. Yeah. It came yeah, up yeah, to you. Yeah. yeah. So the, the final category is where they are integrated. And this is trying to be basically as holistic as possible with these things. Okay. Like to suggest that the world is such that the way we can investigate it scientifically, critically in that matter, it still has deep consonance with sort of spiritual reality, whatever we mean when we say that, uh -huh. recognizing that these things are that the shared point between science and religion is the human person who is attempting to know. Oh, okay. So right? the human person is the overlapping point of science and yeah. faith. Interesting. Okay. On the sort of integration model. Yeah. That, and that being the case, yeah, there's something to a theologian trying to take scientific language and categories and use them in his own discipline or her own discipline to the extent that they could do. Right. And the other way around. Like, it's just recognizing that um, uh, humans are not necessarily a monolith. <laughs> you know, we are a hodgepodge of all sorts of right. things and influences from our histories and our education and our life experience. So then what's the difference? You mentioned capital S science and then lowercase S science. What's the difference there philosophically? Words are fun. You know they this. are fun. I, That's right. <laughs> I, I have I, I have watched people's eyes roll into the back of their skulls as I start to go. Here's a fun word. Let's talk about what it means, right? Um. So there was a time, for example, where before we were talking about sort of capital S science, that was really just called natural philosophy. Right, Science so, used to be called natural philosophy. Yeah. So a like it's on a strictly historical read, it is more accurate to call Newton a natural uh, philosopher, philosopher than a scientist because the term scientist itself didn't exist until about the 1820s. Wow. Yeah. So and and even then its sort of genesis came from somebody who was looking for a word to describe an artist for knowing. And when you get those two words together, you get scientist because science artist. is just the Latin word. Hmm? Scientia, yeah, knowledge. Yeah, the Latin word scientia is about knowing. Wow. So, and a scientist, again, if, we're, if you have to be careful with just how much freight you're putting onto the origins of an etymology, 
because words change and their meanings change. Right. Uh, but that's a useful touchstone to work from. You go, oh, okay, yeah, scientists, there's something to them that is an art that takes more than just the sort of um, outright mechanical skill of running an experiment, which some people might take me up with. You know, they might be quite upset at the idea. They go, no, but of course the scientist is meant to just strictly work according to these rules. You go, yes. However, if we look at, so there was a philosopher of science called Michael Polanyi. Right. And one of the things he wrote about was that over the course of you doing your work as a theologian, as a scientist, as a musician, as a person who tastes food, like any number Chef, of these things. Yeah. yeah uh, your hours of experience nonetheless work into a sort of embodied experience that sometimes gives you wisdom into your domain that another person might not necessarily have. Right. So yeah, you bring your expertise to something. Yeah. But he, he's gone a step further where your expertise sinks into you as a person and becomes connoisseurship. Yeah. Uh, like in that way that, you know, a, a, well, a really good chef can taste something and go, I think there's a hint of cinnamon in here even though it might show up really, really early in the recipe and the actual working of it. Um, or one of my teachers told the story that he was running um, spectrographic tests of some sort. And it gives you a printout, which gives you all these sort of markers that tell you what different chemicals are. And so he got a printout and he looked at all the markers and he went, oh yeah, yeah, this matches what I was expecting. This matches what I was expecting. But I don't know what that one's for. There's just one that he couldn't explain. And so he walked down the hallway to his teacher, who also happened to be like the leading professional mind on this device and how it reads things. And he went, I, so I have, I'm expecting to see this, that, and the other thing. And his professor looks at the thing and goes, yeah, I see it. It's there, it's there, it's there. And he goes, but what's this other one? And the man who knew the most about this machine just went, yeah, it does that sometimes. <laughs> But that's that's the sort of thing you only get from just years and years of experience of your right. discipline impacting on your person. Yeah. So so that's that's a brief little bit about capital S science, right? The the parallel to that, or something in conjunction with that, to be mindful of is that like there is such a thing as capital R religion, as a very very modern concept. Okay, try to do that one in a bullet form. <laughs> what is cap? Yeah. Because I understand that some people have particular approaches towards science or religion, in which case they have no humility about how they approach science and no humility about how they approach religion. And I can mm -hmm. see that influencing how people let them be in conflict, like you said, in independence mm -hmm. or in dialogue mm -hmm. or in integration with each other. So I can see that before you even talk about how they talk with each other, you kind of have to talk about how you even understand science and religion on its own. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What these things are. Mm -hmm. Right. And I guess a, a good question then these, the, these four views, conflict, independence, dialogue, integration, they don't seem to be stages that you pass through. It's not like you're born at conflict and then you're like, you have an independent view at teenage years and, and mm -hmm. dialogue or 
in your older years, your integration, it seems as though you can actually skip around to each of these throughout your lifetime. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? I, I think I would be uncomfortable with saying that these are stages you go through. Uh, yeah. And even that, you know, it's, it's more helpful to remember that these are like models. These are ways for you to try and frame this thing in your mind. Um, especially because, well, we are sort of doing a balancing act with these two things. You know, there, there's something to be said about um, inference to best explanation, where we're going, right, given all the evidence I have about how I've related to these two huge things. Science, science and, religion, and religion, yeah. The way I can make the balance of how they relate in this particular point in my life might be independence, might be dialogue. And then you sort of work from there. Mm -hmm. Now, this is just a, a complete opinion, but it mm. feels as though in Western Christianity, the most prevalent models would be that science and religion are in conflict or in independence. That from the pulpit, it feels as though, maybe it's just how it's given PR, most people maybe think that they are in conflict or we should just never let them talk to each other. But I feel as though it's pretty rare from the pulpit that you hear science and religion in dialogue or in integration. Is that right? That, that might be the case. Yes. Again, it's the, as I've told people here in Scotland, when they ask me about the U S the U S is huge. <laughs> like, it's true. It's, uh, I think there's something fair that it's um, it is an easier place to talk from, right? The lines are a little more clear. Oh, okay. And it might be that that just the training a lot of ministers have, and the times they were brought up in, like it might be that that is something that fundamentally is sort of partly working against them, the because of also the age. Yeah, yeah. dialogue and integration are harder. They're a little more granular. They take more details to take in. You maybe need to know a little bit more of each one. Maybe, yeah. Because if you have an independent view, then you don't feel the need to know anything about religion and what it says or what science in it says. But in order to have them integrated, it seems as though you have to have a little bit of knowledge of each. At least, yeah, I think so. So can you give an example of a person that does each of these? Mm, I have a think. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think conflict, we could probably find a fair few without thinking terribly hard. Like quite a lot of the, uh, the new atheist movement, I think would be a fair example of that, right? Where, so this is um, okay. Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, um, uh, uh, um, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, for example, like I think those ones are, yeah, fairly obviously it's, you know, they would argue that like, well, yeah, religion is a sort of backwards bane yeah. on how yeah, humans yeah. relate across the world and does nothing but foment wars and uh, um, hurt people. And then also uh, the certain types of fundamentalism would do that from the other side, right? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, independence. Who would be thrown to that? 
Um, I haven't read much of his stuff in a while, but Stephen Jay Gould, Gould's is one example of this, where okay. he just is sort of, yeah, working that they're somewhat independent. Uh, he was a, um, he did a lot with biological science. So I think okay. he did a lot of work with evolutionary biology. And if I remember right, I might be wrong in this, he made the argument that um, there's no such thing as a fish, like that the category is just sort of, it sort of, pun not intended holy enough that there's no one like creature in the sea that quite fits the definition of fish interesting um because they're all just so diverse from each so other very okay yeah um uh, dialogue most likely actually maybe i put tehar de Chardin in this category um not an in integration well again it's sort of a judgment call i think he'd be yeah certainly on that side of things yeah um um, but probably, I want to say Tom Torrance for integration, but I think even that's a hard sell. Because um, try as he might, he'd still had some sort of independence conflict. Well, let's, parts. for people that may not know, okay, so Teilhard tried to synthesize or let evolution and Christianity be in dialogue. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. And some parts of his writing, he was even trying to integrate them. And I think that he was writing at a time when the Catholic church at most was maybe more independent, maybe even in conflict mm. with science and religion. So didn't know what to do with them. Right. And that's why he Possibly. was censured. Yeah. But Torrance, yeah. he tried to write about, as I understand it, Christianity and Einsteinian physics. In a couple of books. Yeah. In some, in some of his stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he was much more, yeah. Towards the sort of, dialogue integration side. However, it's a little harder sell for him given that he did so much that was just outright um, theology oh, I and see. sort of less, you might think, direct hands-on science other than okay. when he was doing sort of uh, philosophy of science work. So does someone have to, is the goal integration? Is that the goal? What is the goal here? <laughs> uh i think when you're presented with this this order this taxonomy the goal is to try and figure out which one you are in in the moment okay because if nothing else by hearing there's four other ways you you suddenly go no there's not i agree with this one and you go well actually there's quite a lot of people who might hold to the other positions so that's why i'm i'm so use these four as like a mind. compass to map where you are. Yeah. And just okay. that like, it, it's one of those things that can help you sort of, well, once you start catching an ear for it, you can almost always hear people voice those like life principles where you go, oh, there's a little bit of the conflict model operating there. Um, oh. So it just becomes a, a helpful way to get a little bit of a gauge on where somebody might be. Of course, people are interesting. So there's no guarantee that they will be strictly um, consistent with their thinking across right, of course. all categories of their life. We're yeah. all walking contradictions. Where would mm. um, where would Thomas Aquinas fall? Because he was trying to, in some sense, synthesize or interpret Christianity in light of Aristotle, mm -hmm. who had a Although science of his own. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, I have 
I have part one of the Summa just over there. Um, uh, yeah, right. He, yeah, I think most definitely would fall more into the middle bits, independence and dialogue. Integration would still end really? up being hard for him. Oh, yeah. Uh, but like integration would be a difficult sell because he's still, as quite a lot of um, uh, Christian theologians are willing to say that like God is still a, th God is not properly a thing because a thing can be measured. And if mm -hmm. God is spirit and spirit is fundamentally unmeasurable. Right. <laughs> uh, God is then no it's, thing. <laughs> yeah. Then that becomes a little trickier. Right. Um, right. Hmm. So then how does one over a lifetime go from one of these to another? From like conflict into dialogue or from independence into integration. I could even see somebody going from dialogue and then they hit a point and then it shifts to conflict. How is it that people shift from one of these four to another? I have to imagine it will, any of these shifts will occur as reactions to life events, not necessarily from like a good study. chat you had with a friend once. Like yeah. it's, you know, we, we um, one of the other, I was reading a youth ministry book recently can't recall which one, but one of its points was that we sort of navigate the world by feeling what is right. So yeah. like our gut yeah. feeling does a lot to indicate what we think is right in the moment. And then we tend to work from there. So that's why I'm tempted to think that like, or I, I could, I could see very clearly that like, well, sudden death of somebody close to you, you know, any of those major transition points could very easily be a moment where you start to pivot on what you think about yourself in the church or yourself and not church. If you were not a church going person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could also see a major discovery in science might make you rethink things. If it hits pop culture, mm, yeah. you know, I yeah, could see the moon landing probably cause some people to rethink some things. Mm, Certainly mm -hmm. the advent of evolution made people question that theory alongside Christianity when it first came out? Kind of. <laughs> what is that? What is that? Okay. No, because it, there is some evidence to suggest that in the first couple of, I think it was two or three decades after Darwin published his writings, like yeah. didn't make as big a splash in England. Uh, it turns, it seems like more of right? the, the flashpoint for huh. evolution and science or for, for evolution and Christianity vis-a-vis -vis Genesis right? More of the flashpoint actually comes from the Scopes Monkey trial, which was a trial about basically how you should teach Genesis in schools in Tennessee or something uh, in the 1920s, 1910s. Wow. So quite early. So that's, that's much more of the sort of cultural flashpoint in the U.S. to do with the conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you think of there's um, uh, one of Darwin's sort of students, popularizers, um, I forget his first name, but he was of the Huxley family. Um, so he's a yeah. Aldous Huxley was one of his, his later um, children, those who followed him. But he was regarded as Darwin's bulldog because he went around sort of saying and purporting Darwin's theories as being hard and fast right. Or as it's worth remembering, you know, to, to keep the, the human side in context here. Like, yeah, Darwin had the huge journey that he did, all of the recording that he did, swatching birds and 
tortoises on the, the Galapagos. And it seems like he was quite nervous about what he was, wanted to publish because he knew it would come to some kind of, or he thought it would come into some kind of conflict with the sort of prevailing Church of England at the time. However, before he set sail, he was in training to be a minister. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to remember that in context. It's because at that time, if your family had money enough, it was respectable enough to send a kid send off a to become kid. a minister. Yeah. Uh, coincidentally, worth remembering in context with the century as a whole, quite a lot of the early scientists were ministers because, frankly, they had more time in their week as they were visiting folk to entertain sort of very in-depth orderly study of of whatever caught their interest bugs butterflies bees plants and from which you get that's it's it's not a surprise amongst other things that there are lots of ministers who are also early movers and shakers in scientific fields in the 1700s and 1800s so then up through today okay can you list off i'm interested certain Mm -hmm. ministers or people of the church that made significant contributions so the idea of the Big Bang came from, I think it was a Jesuit, right? Uh, George Lemaitre, yeah. Right. We also have um, mm-hmm. our modern calendar, if I understand it, was actually influenced by a uh, church-going astronomer, mm-hmm. right? What else is there? Um Arguably Galileo, although again, that's a loaded uh, name because a lot of folk have this this idea put in place that he was unduly persecuted, which is a simplification because there is evidence to suggest that one of his letters that he wrote got him in trouble, but because it was a sort of punchy letter that at the time what was in vogue was that you'd have a good argument. And Uh so he wrote a letter in this spirit and it was just sort of read and and that's what got him into more trouble so it was more because of the sort of political implications of what he was saying than necessarily a scientific religion point of view on it again a little more complicated that for he's would be a fair example george lemaitre um mendel had to do with genes passing between plants oh that's right mendel Mendelssohn, yeah modern uh, father of genetics who was a i think he was an augustinian i forget what what sort he was uh, we've already mentioned Teilhard de Chardin, Jesuit. Um, who else can I think of more recently? Well, I've mentioned some of the other very recent persons, John Polkinghorn, right. Ian Barber, Tom Torrance. Um, although Torrance is, can be a bit impenetrable. So maybe not your first go-to if you're mm-hmm. interested in getting into some of them. Yeah. Right. But the reality is that there are examples of really of all four of these models. It's Mm. not as though Mm. when you become an official ordained church going person, it's not like everyone Mm. that becomes in that role immediately becomes conflict. No, I don't think so. Oh, there's also um, Nancy Murphy has done quite a lot recently. Um, So she's the last couple of years, Nancy Murphy, Peter Harrison does a lot to do with sort of history of science and religion. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so his, he has a book that came out in 2016, I think, called Territories of Science and Religion, which is like excellent, <laughs> like truly a wonderful read. Um, 
And if you're doing, if you're interested in sort of youth ministry stuff, actually Andy Root has quite a few really useful books to do with this sort of terrain. So uh, Darwin, for example, one of the other things to remember about Darwin's lifetime is that like in his lifetime, had a number of children tragically die. Yeah. And it's not a surprise that he has more resistance to ideas about God if that's happening, if he's, he has children who are dying and himself had somewhat of a sort of weakish constitution. So if he's sort of, if pain is close to him for a lot of his life, not surprising that he has a more difficult relationship with mm. an all good, all powerful, right. beneficent being. Right. Um, but Nancy Murphy does some has some books to do with what's called non-reductive physicalism, which is, as far as I can tell, it's sort of like an attempt to bring what would otherwise be the soul body distinction into modern lingo. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So non-reductive physicalism. You can't reduce a human person just down to nothing but the cell, the the atoms that compose them. Uh, however, we are through and through physical, <laughs> um, so that there is something to us, something about soul or spirit that is more than the sum of our constituent atoms. Right. So we we probably should wrap this up. If you mm. were to um, maybe give a three, four, five sentences of advice. For someone that maybe is interested in this conversation of how science and religion interact. Not necessarily that they have to be people that find them in conflict, but what would you say are some really helpful guidelines to think about how science and religion could or should relate? One of my favorites that I keep working on with myself is... Um, <laughs> It might it, question yourself <laughs> or to use the older um, form of it, like know thyself, right. be, be sure to catch that. Like, no, you, you, you might well be wrong about something. Like once you can start to hear other people's life principles, when they say like, well, you can't make money in theater, you know, well, lots of folk have. So that's, that's a statement where we're learning more about you than anything else. Once yeah. you can hear that from other people, it becomes easier for you to try and listen to it yourself. Mm. Okay. So if you look for those moments, that's quite helpful for at least seeing, for starting to ask yourself, why do I think that? Why, why do I think that has to be the case? Right. And mm -hmm. that would be, I think, be the biggest one. Um, and then with it, yeah, go outside of what you typically read or listen to. Like try and mix up your diet of things you're listening of things you're listening to and reading. I mean, there are, there are a slew of podcasts in this regard. Like mm -hmm. I think I've mentioned before, we and I we, we've spoken about how like there are some videos that Bishop um, Barron puts out that are really quite helpful, and he's coming from a, a quite um, sort of ardent Roman Catholic root, but he has a really good sort of grasp of the history of the church yeah it's just i i think he has quite a lot that he contributes quite well or uh, i mentioned andy root who has a couple of youth ministry books 
that deal sort of broadly with science and religion topics as well. One with a very lovely title of uh, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs and Zombies. Loads of fun, yeah? Um, as well as, uh, what was the, th the last one? It was that, Nancy Murphy, Andy Root. Oh, um, Trip Fuller. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Does the uh, Homebrew Christianity podcast. He's another one to listen to and has a huge back catalog. So I think if we're looking for a couple of other names and a couple of things to look at, that's a really good place to start. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Steve. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Maybe we can do this again if you have another insight about science and religion. That would be fun. Insight, um, bugbear, whichever. We'll put this up at some point. But thank you for your time. I'm going to say awesome. adios and have a good one. Great. Thanks. All right. Bye.